Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Scribe is the magic behind Colossus Transcripts, and Scribe is the presenting sponsor of this episode of Making Media. One of the best decisions we made at Colossus was transcribing all of our audio into a searchable transcript library. Now, we had been using another provider who won't be named up until the summer of 2022, but we were constantly having issues with the accuracy of our audio, even if it was just the slightest bit impaired or hard to hear. Scribe has solved those problems and more. So whether it's training sessions that you're having, internal Q&As, or for media purposes like ours, the value of transcripts is huge and probably bigger than I even ever expected. And we're not alone. Scribe is the service that powers all of S&P Global, like Capital IQ, and their client list also includes our friends at Tegas. So go to joincolossus.com backslash scribe, that's S-C-R-I-B-E, and you'll unlock 150 minutes of free transcription. Again, joincolossus.com backslash scribe to test their capabilities. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, for this episode of Making Media, Dom and I sit down with Sean Griffey, CEO and co-founder of Industry Dive. Now, when I first heard Sean talk about B2B media and his strategy for building Industry Dive, I honestly just needed to hear more. I devoured a ton of his podcast appearances and various interviews that he did because I often feel like conversations on media strategy purely focus on audience growth. They don't ever mention the nuances to who those people are in your audiences, how much you spent to acquire those audiences, and the realities of running a company that can actually just stay in business. Sean is the exact opposite of that. And he's built a fascinating business with Industry Dive, recently sold at an enterprise value north of 500 million. So I expect a lot of what we learn to be about being focused, having a niche. Sean is a great example of the success you can have with that strategy. I think there's something to learn regardless of whether you're a content creator or just on the business side of things. Enjoy this interview and enjoy our debrief after the conversation. All right, Sean. So as I was mentioning before we hit record here, Dom and I both left the investment world for the media world. We are outsiders. But something that clicked with me is that you were one of the first people that I heard speak about media in a business first way. Harsh truth not all subscribers or listeners or followers are of the same value. And I think your business really captures that. So maybe you can actually just start at a very high level with defining B2B media, the industry that you work in. 
Absolutely. So my partners and I started Industry Dive, I guess now 11 years ago. And as you said, we targeted business media very deliberately, very specifically, and we targeted very niche industries within it. And so B2B media, we're not writing for everyone. We're writing for executives in specific markets, and we tailor content precisely for them. So I always tell people, you know, the difference between consumer and B2B media, when a story happens, say Amazon buys Whole Food, that's a day story in the Wall Street Journal. They're talking about the deal terms. They're talking about what happens to the leadership. They cover it for a day or two, and then they move on. And that's the interest for people. When that happens in a B2B media, we're covering it for months. And we're saying, what happens next to the technology? What happens next to merchandising and products? How does this change grocery shopping, e-commerce play, et cetera? And so for us, the people who care about that aren't the general readers of the Wall Street Journal. They're practitioners within very specific markets. They're people who make purchasing decisions within those industries. They need to follow the ins and outs of their company, their industry, or their jobs could change, their companies could change, their success depends on it. One of the things that I've heard you mention a few times is that when you launched Industry Dive, you saw marketing or ad-based media as somewhat of a neglected market. And everyone was calling for the end of ad-based media subscription model, which still feel like all the rage. But where do you think that stands today in terms of the general sentiment around ad-based media and the opportunity, which it seems like there was a major opportunity that you were able to capture over the past 10 years as others neglected it? Where does it feel like that is today? Everything's a pendulum. It swings back and forth. I first got into media in 2005 when everything was free. You needed no paywalls, no the rest. And then a number of years ago, it was like, well, that didn't work. We've got to go completely to the opposite of it and go to subscriptions only. And that's the only way that we're going to make it work. I mean, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. But I think for niche media, for B2B media, the fact that the purchasing decisions that these people make are so large, the ad market still works really, really well. For us, a North American electric utility exec could be influencing or making $30 million purchasing decisions. So the ad dollars to reach that person, incredibly high. So for markets like ours, marketing supported still works really well. I think for consumer media, which I don't partake in, but I certainly follow, I think there needs to be a little bit more of a balance for those guys. You know, I think they need to think about it in a multi-pronged way. That might be the answer to this question, but I thought a lot about trust with your readership and particularly in a marketing or ad-supported model where you go to some websites that are content-based and they're just ads everywhere. And it makes you wonder the motive behind the content, whether it's legitimately insightful or whether it's just selling ads. And actually today on Business Breakdowns, which is one of our podcasts, we're talking about WeChat and they're very intentional about how little they let people push notifications to their audience. Is there a limit? Have you found any tension between that in terms of it being an issue for readers who think they're getting overwhelmed with marketing messages? Or how have you thought about this issue? If the content you're producing, the editorial content you're producing is valuable to them, people will accept a high amount of advertising as a price to it. But more to the point, I think what works really well and what we try to do is make sure that the marketing messages they get 
are actually relevant. Hey, here's a solution to the industry problems that you are bound to face. Here is the most pressing issues that you have, and we know that these are your issues. Here's thought leadership from the leading vendors in those. People actually want that. I'm always surprised when you look at some of our sponsored content that will do as well as some of the best editorial content in a given week. It's because when PwC comes in and says, here's our view on the tax changes, they're experts. And our readers who are CFOs in our CFO doc publication are happy to hear PwC's sponsored position on some of these things. So if you can make the advertising, the marketing helpful and relevant, people really want it. But if you make the content overall incredibly valuable, even if it's not a home run in the ads, they'll tolerate it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Certainly what we see, it, it mostly always comes back to content and delivering high quality content and the rest of the business works off of that. Shifting gears a bit, I've heard you talk about how you enter markets and how you're very strategic about that. And actually that you tend to like seeing competition in a market that you might be thinking about because it tends to mean that there are dollars there to earn and you'd rather not be first, but you'd rather be out executing your competition. Can you talk a little bit about your launch strategy for new publications? What do you make sure to nail in the opening three, six, nine months? And maybe if you've got an example from the past that you could use as a case study, that would be really helpful. You're right that we have a criteria that we look at when we launch into all of these new markets, one of the things that we've been very deliberate about in the whole time, we're not chasing the fanciest story, we're chasing the money. And we started this as a business. We're very careful about what is our business model? How do we execute against it? And so for us, when we look at new markets, we look for areas of high capital spend. That means that there's buyers and sellers within those. And that seems pretty straightforward, but you'd be amazed at how many times I see media companies enter a market with an ad-supported model, and there's just not a lot of buying and selling in that industry. You look at investment bankers, they make a lot of money and they're parties to a huge amount of deals, but they only buy plane tickets and laptops. So my model would never work for investment bankers. We would have to have a subscription model for them. So we look for high capital spend. We look for industries that aren't very consolidated. So early in my career, we were in the telecom space, and that was great until Arbox all consolidated into three carriers, four carriers. The buying and selling decisions are very concentrated. And if you view your role as a connector between buyers and sellers, and that's part of what marketing supported media is, consolidated industries don't work. And then, as you said, um, we're looking for industries where there's competition. And that's just a sign that there's a market. Our bet is that we can out-execute in the market. I'm not trying to have the first cannabis publication or crypto publications out there, even though both of those markets were probably going to be great business media supported markets. I just don't need to be the first. I'll try to out-execute. So we go with that as the lens when we enter markets. When we get there, the first thing we have to do is nail who the reader is. It's not enough to say, oh, we're going to enter the retail industry. We're not writing for people who manage a single store for the Gap or something. We're writing for people who make technology and e-commerce decisions within the retail space. And so understanding who the exact reader within the market is, is the most critical thing we can do because then we can tailor content around their needs. When we get that, things tend to fall in place. That's the high level. I mean, 
we're really aggressively launching publications this year. We have 12 publications in the hopper, which is much more aggressive than we've done in the past. But it's one of those ones that the faster you can build audience, the faster this stuff can scale. And we look at each of our publications to be 10 million plus in revenue. And so if it's going to take a couple of years to get there, we might as well start launching them all today. I think I heard you mention a couple of years ago that you were launching three to four in the upcoming year. And that was really the limit. It seems like that's sped up. I can come up with my own answers to why that might be the case. But maybe you can elaborate on that a bit. Is it just a matter of once you've had more successful publications, it becomes easier to build up those distributions? Or is there something else that's playing a role in terms of accelerating the speed at which you release new publications? It's a couple factors. One is we're certainly have gotten a lot better at it. As you can imagine over the years, the internal knowledge and skill sets that it takes to launch these are there. Two, there's just really a belief, you know, it's the old saying is the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is today. You can only speed the growth of a publication so fast. And so if we want these to be successful five years from now, we got to start planting the seeds today. I think that's one of the things that media has gotten wrong. The venture capital dollars that have gone into media have over the years tried to speed up the building of a brand and building of audiences and engaged loyal audiences in an artificial way. You can't build an engaged, loyal, large audience in six months or a year. It takes time to be part of someone's daily routine. And so I think this is a recognition that the faster we get going on this, the better. And then the third thing is we have a new corporate partner at Industry Dive, Informa, which is a publicly traded UK company, one of the largest specialty information and event businesses in the world. And what they have are engaged audiences in offline physical events that they don't have digital properties for. And so what we're seeing is that we can help fill in an always-on solution towards their event attendees and audiences with digital properties with ourselves. Yeah, I think I heard you once say it's easy to get traffic, it's hard to get an audience. And that's something that certainly stuck with me. How do you evaluate, again, given the business sense that you go into this with, how long of a leash you give or how long of a timeline you give to new publications where they need to be hitting certain milestones for you to keep investing in those? And is there a general rule of thumb that you have for saying, okay, this has been paid back and now we think this is a successful publication? Like, how long are you willing to invest behind new publications? We really have to see about the 18-month mark, see an uptick both in advertiser demand that we're hitting the right audience, and then the readers are responding. I will say this, I mean, we don't close publications that often. It's happened where we've said, we've totally just missed the mark, like we're going to get out of this market on its own. What happens more for us is, and this is part of my belief in operating a media company, our publications have to stand on their own in a direct cost way. They have to cover their own cogs. And if they can do that, we'll give them more of a leash. But one thing that we've been very deliberate on is, and what you see in a lot of large media companies is they have one really stellar publication that is incredibly profitable that funds nine other less profitable ones. And then something happens to the profitable ones and there's layoffs at 10 publications. 
we've never wanted to fall into that trap where we're relying on one winner or a handful of winners to fund the rest. Honestly, we were a bootstrap business. So this is the legacy of no venture dollars where we had to be profitable really quickly. Our publications by the 18 mark should be self-sufficient. And if they aren't, then we really need to think about it. I'd love to know a bit more about the structure of how you operate Industry Dive, both from a systems perspective and a people perspective. Obviously, content is at the middle of this business. Writing in each different vertical is a very different challenge, I'm sure. So how much decentralization is there? Does each publication have their own people, both writing content and also from the tech side of things? Or is there sort of a centralized back office and tech system and then the content creators live in their own publication? We standardize quite a bit and much more than most other media companies. This started with our belief when we looked at the markets and said, we want a billion dollar company, but if we're in niche markets, each of these niche markets can only get to say 20 million or 30 million in revenue, then we need to be in a lot of markets. And the only way that we can succeed there is if we're incredibly efficient with it. So all of our publications We talk about the classic MBA case study, the Southwest Airlines, where they have one type of plane and every pilot can fly that plane and every mechanic can work on a plane and every part can transpose. We try to do that as much as possible with our products and brands. And so there's a common naming structure for the brands. There is a common technology platform that we use and data structure underneath so that we can take these small groups and scale them. Our sales reps can sell the entire portfolio. Their sales territories are focused on buyer types. And those buyer types may buy in one of our publications, or they may buy as many as 15. We have the reps focused not on a specific industry, but on their buyers and go across. The one place where there is specialization is on the editorial. We have dedicated teams within those markets where there's real subject matter expertise in writing for the audience and the rest. But otherwise, just about everyone at Industry Dive can cross markets with the processes, with the products, with the technology. It's just the editorial that needs to be spot on the industry. And in terms of the way that you view sales and the procedure of sales and hearing that there are some customers that actually buy across 15 different niches or silos that you have, that is actually a surprising metric to me. Obviously, there's a benefit for a single salesperson being able to close one customer across many different platforms. Is that an opportunity? Is that something that you've captured a lot of? My assumption coming into this was actually that most of the advertisers would be specific to one single platform. Our biggest advertisers go across a number of verticals, and that's how they become the biggest advertisers. It tends to be enterprise SaaS software companies the Salesforces and Oracles and IBMs of the world who are reaching and have solutions that play in a lot of our markets. So those are the types of clients that become our biggest clients just because by nature of what they do, they want to reach executives in a lot of industries. The backbone of our business, though, is what you said. that It may be these middle market SaaS companies or service providers within these industries in the construction industries building information management software companies that advertise with us quite a bit. You know, in the utility space, it can be folks with distributed energy solutions that maybe want to reach only one or two of our markets. That said, part of this is very deliberate. When we launch into new markets, 
we often look for adjacent industries where our existing client base and some of our reader base can also be interested in. So we started with a food manufacturing publication that went into a grocery publication and some of the same vendors and ecosystem overlap there. We then launched into a restaurant business, which then siphoned a piece of that. And we have a convenience store publication now. And so by going very adjacent to some of those industries, you create opportunities for some of these people to interact in more than one vertical. On the content side, if there's one thing I've learned from the last couple of years is that content can be a grind. There are really no shortcuts to making quality content, particularly consistently. And you know, you're sending out daily newsletters in each vertical. What have you learned about scaling a content business? I think you started with five publications, you know, a lot more than that and soon to be even more. So we just love your lessons. I think the challenge is to have something incredibly insightful every day. And honestly, every day might be a challenge. You just need insight more than not. One of the things I've learned is that I'm not a journalist. I'm the operator in the MBA. So hire really great people to do it. When the content's really good here, it's not about what happens. It's about what happens next. For us, the thing we've learned in our editorial model is the editorial team is very deliberate to say, okay, what are the four or five trends within the industry that really matter to this specific industry? And then as a small team, what of that can we cover? And what of that can we cover in depth? And what trade-offs do we have to make? We can't cover every story here. And we can't randomly cover interesting stories, whatever. We have to pick which of these trends we own and that we're going to be seen as experts. So when there is a story about this, when there is a retail bankruptcy, people know to come to Retail Dive to read it because our retail team has covered the changes in bankruptcy and the evolution of the retail business model in depth. And so I think that for us has been the key of forward-looking, choose what you're going to cover and own, be deliberate about what you're not going to cover. The risk is that you just skim the surface on everything and none of it's really helpful. Content is one side of the equation and then the audience is the other. How do you go about making sure you're capturing the right audience, audience growth, paid channels versus any other channels that you use? What have you learned to be the most effective strategy for building these very niche audiences? I think the thing that we've learned the most is nothing works forever. I will say this, marketers will hit a vein of something that's good and then they'll mine it until it's completely destroyed. And that is just the sort of secret of marketers is that when they find something good, they'll ultimately destroy it. And we're marketers searching for audiences. We're just as guilty of that as well. The one thing that I say is that you have to constantly be looking for new channels. You constantly have to be finding and experimenting with new ways. I can look over the history of Industry Dive, and there was a time when Twitter was really great source of generating new subscribers, email subscribers. Then it was really bad. And now people are having success with it again. Now, I think they're having success with it in untargeted. You know, It won't work for us because it's not targeted in the solutions. But for a while, it was. Seven years ago, we were on Twitter looking for subscribers all the time. Then we were in LinkedIn groups for a long time. And we own dozens of some of the largest LinkedIn groups. And then LinkedIn sort of changed how the groups operate. It became more spammy and harder for us to generate good subscribers with it. Today, we're experimenting with new channels. 
there's no single magic bullet. You kind of have to be everywhere at all the time. And does that even include something like TikTok, where to me, it feels like it's a very consumer-driven app. You're probably not going to have the executive of a utility company on TikTok. I could be completely wrong, but I'm just curious how you think about some of the more influencer or consumer-based channels and experimenting with those. Never say never. I mean, I'll certainly experiment, but I think I'd have to be proven that there's something there pretty quickly before we hired the TikTok team or did the rest. I mean, the funny thing is, like, I don't even know how targeted the ad options are with TikTok. The funny thing is, every now and then, some of these consumer platforms are actually sneakily good because they don't value business audiences properly. So they'll view like, hey, gender is just as important demographic as company. And I'm like, actually, no. If you let me pick pharmaceutical companies and only show ads to those people at consumer rates, I am happy to do that. That's going to hunt almost every day. And so every now and then, I don't know TikTok specifically, I've never looked at it, but every now and then you'd be surprised that some of these folks are building the platforms for consumer marketers and they don't realize how much more we would pay. I just needed validation as to why we're not on TikTok (laughs) either. So I could have paid you some dollars under the table for that one. And once you've got your audience, how do you then interact with them? You were talking earlier about just making sure that you've nailed the content for those people and they're getting it out of the publications, what they want. And I'm guessing you've got a treasure trove of data in your system as well because you own the relationship via the newsletter. How do you get that feedback from your customers and make sure that you're evolving with them and their needs? The number one thing you do is look at their behaviors. We certainly will survey the audience. We'll ask them questions and check our net promoter scores and the rest. But nothing's better than seeing if they care to open the newsletter on any given day. And are they reading the stories? And for us, it's not just a matter of are people opening the newsletter? Are the right people opening the newsletter, right? So we have a CDP is one of our backends. We cohort the high-value subscribers. And high-value means people we've identified, job titles, company types that we've identified as the buyers within the buyer-seller dynamic. And we will watch that group. And we will see what is their engagement relative to the overall population How are we growing that? How many of those folks are we signing up? How many of those folks are referring friends and colleagues to the publication? And so more than asking them how we're doing, their actions speak louder than words. But I don't necessarily care about everyone and everyone's actions. You know, I joke with my mom who reads our food publication all the time that the second she stops opening it, I'm going to kick her off the list because she doesn't help me at all. She's a retired government worker who finds the food industry interesting, but her demographics are a drag on my thing. And I'm like, you better open every week or you're getting bumped fast. But if she was a CEO of a food company, she probably could stay on there for a couple of weeks before I gave up on her. It sounds like the tech stack that you have is very key to driving the success of the business, I assume. With that data, it's driving a lot of the decisions that you're making about future content as well. It seems like there has been a big release of new platforms for, I won't call them media businesses, but a lot of content creators to use. But a lot of that data is now not yours. You don't own that data. There's a platform that sits between you and that data. Podcasting is notoriously hard for capturing great data. How 
important do you think that piece is to the overall equation? The the tech that you own and the data that you own versus outsourcing some of those things. If you were to look at the enterprise value of your business, how much of it comes down to that piece? A significant amount and increasingly amount. If you look at a macro trend of privacy and you say 10 years from now, is it going to be harder to target people's privacy more of a factor or less of a factor? I think right now, when you see what's happening in Europe and the US, it's going to be more of a factor. So control of first party data is going to be what differentiates people. The fact that the media industry didn't care about it for a couple of decades may be one of the biggest mistakes we've made as an industry. And regulations are going to undo this for us. It's going to kind of save everyone by putting the value back on owned premium audiences and cutting out middlemen who commoditize it. We've invested heavily in our first-party data collection for years now. The technology is getting much better at it. We were trying to build it ourselves 10 years ago, only to look up and find that there are entire SaaS businesses that can do this for us now. It's a huge part of it. Something you also offer, which I find really interesting, is the content studio. And you partner seemingly with brands to craft their content. You referenced before sponsored content. I assume there's a few other ways that they can use this. How early was that as a piece of the overall business? And where does that stand today just in terms of the overall pie of the business? On some level, there was a component of it right from the start, but it really became a meaningful component of the business maybe five years ago, four years ago, and has grown to almost 40% of our revenue comes from our content studio in some way, shape, or form. The thesis behind it at the highest level, if you look at the trends and people say every company is a media company today, there's some reality in that, in that every company wants to have authentic interactions with their customers and their prospective customers. And so content is the leading way you can do that. So if you believe that, then you say, okay, are companies equipped to be media companies? And you look at the media industry for the last 20 years, it's pretty damn hard business. There's a lot of people that struggle with it. And so our view was there's expertise that a generalist marketer just isn't going to have to be a media company, and they're going to look for help. That's the sort of high-level view of why we got into it. I also think there is a place for media that we have advantages that other people don't have. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what does our business have that other people can't provide. If you look at the content studios of 10 years ago, you really needed storytellers and marketers to kind of create content and a marketing strategy for it. I think if you look at it today and tomorrow, you really need first-party data to say what's resonating with those audiences, then if you can provide a platform to distribute the content, you're even better off. And only media companies can do that. So one of the examples I gave is that we had in the pandemic, someone wanting to reach CFOs, and they were messaging around the PPP loans. And they could come to us and say, hey, do people still care about the PPP loans? And what we're able to do is say, we have a couple hundred thousand CFOs across 20-some industries. I can tell you when they stopped reading about that. And here's what they're reading about today. 
And here's how we're going to change your content strategy and your messaging around it. And then once we've created the great content, do you want to put that message in front of a couple hundred thousand CFOs? Because I have those two and we can market directly to them. And so that's the genesis and the idea around the content studio. Leverage the macro trends, leverage the first party data and audiences we have and create something that other people can't compete with. And how much of that content that gets developed in the studio is actually running through your platform? It's obviously a very nice funnel, as you mentioned, where it can get in front of the people that they care about. But is that the majority of the content you're developing actually running through your channels? Well, we certainly develop content for folks that never sees our audiences and channels. We will manage and run content hubs and publications, their own internal publications and newsletters for some brands within our space. And some of that you'll never see an industry dive name on it. We just have a piece. More of the content eventually sees our audiences, but it doesn't exclusively see our audiences. Our clients can take the content. We will, as part of their package, put it in front of our clients, but then they can use it somewhere else. They can use a competitor site. They can use it on their own sites. They can take it wherever they want. They own the content at that point. Is the margin profile on that drastically different than it is for the advertising side of the business? It can be a little bit lower margins. I wouldn't say drastically, but certainly lower because you're creating something custom for someone versus if we're running just a standard marketing campaign or they're coming to us with their own content. There's a cost there that we don't have to do it. So it's lower margins, but it also allows us to get deeper, longer-term enterprise-style relationships where it's not transactional. We become part of their groups. And so a little bit lower margins, but the deal size goes up and it becomes multi-year contracts. Like we're signing three-year contracts, seven-figure contracts with some of these clients to create content. And those types of relationships just become really sticky. If I zoom out a bit and think about your business as a whole, your growth strategy over time, which has in hindsight worked really well of using the same products for new publications and new audiences. I have to imagine at the time it wasn't so straightforward and you might have been thinking about adding more products for your existing publications and those audiences and then earning money that way. Can you talk about whether that was ever a consideration and how you thought about which avenue to go down? I guess you can't choose everything at once when you're a bit smaller. I think you nailed it. We have to be very deliberate about what we do. There are a couple things that we don't do that other media companies that focus say, on one industry do right away that are on our roadmap, but we've never tackled as the first priority. I mean, some of that is deeper community offerings. So peer groups and those types, live events is another piece. I mean, I think those are two things that I would love to do within our markets. And when I think about acquisitions, there are companies that can allow us to do that quickly at scale across 20-some markets. Really attractive to me to think about those. But we never tackled them because of the distraction factor. We're very confident in the model that we have right now. We didn't want to turn the team's attention to something big and new that would do it. So we kept the marketers as our customer, serving them as our mission sort of view. So when you think about the business, your customer is the marketer, not the person reading the newsletter. Is that how you think about it? They're the ones who write the check today. I used to ask people when they started the company, like, so who do you think our customer is? And it was just not an important question, but I was always curious. And if you talk to the journalists, they would say the reader. And that's healthy. It's healthy for them to think of the reader as the customer. 
you know, if you talk to the sales rep, they would inevitably say the marketer. I'm like, well, they're the ones you're selling to. So yes, they are the customer. They're the ones who are writing us checks. For a lot of media companies, you're trying to make both of them the customer. And there's certainly a symbiotic relationship where you need both. I think if you ding industry dive, it's that we've done nothing to sort of monetize to get the audience to open their wallets and pay us. And I think that's an opportunity long-term, but we've been growing at a pretty good clip. We see dozens more markets that fit our model that we want to be in. I think we'll tackle that first. Yeah. An obvious one seems to be like a premium strategy that the user would pay for. I'm guessing that's felt like a fairly attractive carrot for a while. Absolutely. We love when people tell us ideas too. So (laughs) the obvious ones. There is a tension in building what you want to be a profitable business, but then reinvesting back into the business. And particularly when you're bootstrapped, you have to think about where every dollar goes. Can you just walk through the different arms of the business, sales, editorial, tech, and how you grew those in any particular order that you grew those and what you think is most important? Sounds like the salespeople being a key piece of the overall puzzle, given that they're bringing in the checks. But anything that you can elaborate on there would be really interesting. The chain kind of goes audience first, then sales, and then editorial. And for us, what we've always said is grow audience, monetize it, reinvest in content to grow the audience more. So minimum viable product that can grow the audience. As the audience grows, we make more money. As we make more money, we invest in better content. And so our publications in the early days we would have one full-time journalist across multiple publications and then use freelancers to do it. Today, we launch with at least two full-time journalists within an industry, primarily because we can afford it, also because our audiences expect more of us today. There's an expectation from advertisers and readers that the quality is going to be maybe higher than it was in 2013 when we launched a new publication. But I'm anxious to always invest more in the content because that's ultimately what drives the business. So when I see those teams grow from one to two people to eight people, it's because we're really sort of hitting the mark with what we're doing. That's kind of it. We will invest in sales upfront. We'll invest in editorial as the publication grows and can support it. And you were a famous beneficiary, or at least according to the trade publications, you were a famous beneficiary during coronavirus where events were canceled and budgets needed to be allocated to different areas, different directions. I'm really curious about the specifics here of how you were able to capture those dollars, who manages those sales relationships where you're able to get those checks. Is it simply at the salesperson level where they were able to take advantage of that opportunity and that shift in the market? over those conversations you were having or the executive team was having. I'm just curious about where that opportunity came to be. You're right in that we saw a strong shift of dollars to digital when the pandemic hit. I personally wasn't talking to the clients. I'm a horrible sales rep, which is why you know I have a co-founder who is really great on the revenue side and we have teams of people who are good. I'm an introvert that hates calling people and the rest. But Our studio actually works really closely with client teams on a daily basis, helping them with their strategy and execution. Our sales reps and account managers certainly are supposed to be talking to folks and do talk to folks on a daily basis. One of the really interesting things with the pandemic is I don't think anyone appreciated how much marketers relied on 
events for content in the sense that they would go and speak at a panel and record that panel and use it on their website, or they would host their own user groups and have these user conferences and then create content from that for a full year until the next user group. And suddenly all of these were canceled and folks came to our studio and came to us and just said, I now have a void. All of this has been canceled and I don't have content for folks. I also don't have lead funnels for folks. Where we were is we could solve almost all of those needs. If you were using events for lead generation, we could help that. If you were using it for brand awareness, we can help that. If you're using it to create content, we could help that. And so we saw a big uptick for us. And the great thing is there's not an industry out there that once digital gets in, ever it lets its claws out of. There's these dollars that were, in some cases, still in print or some dollars that were in the events business. And events are a great business, so you'd be a great business for a long time. And they've certainly you know, come back however you want to define that, and we'll be strong. But some of those marketers and some of those dollars got to digital and they're not leaving now and they're growing more and they've seen what we can do to help solve those problems. So a huge uptick in the beginning of the pandemic, but a lasting one for a business like ours. I have struggled a bit, not that this is something I often look for, but your business feels so strong to me at the moment and it's got a really nice runway ahead of it. What keeps you up at night? What do you worry about most when you think about your business into the future? Long-term, very little. You can have bumps in the road along the way. I certainly worry about the people here and the culture of what we're doing. And I think the thing that's made the business the strongest is this incredible culture that, candidly, I have very little to do with. Great cultures are built by the teams that are there. The leaders can want a culture, but the teams are the ones who actually create it and build it. We've been incredibly fortunate with that. I think if that changes, that's going to be the biggest risk to us going forward. If we start to accept mediocrity, we just become another mediocre media company. And there are plenty of those out there. And I worry about us doing something stupid and tripping and costing 18 months of pain to get back to where we are. That certainly happens even to the best operators. Awesome. Well, that's all I had. Dom, anything else from your side? No, just a very big thank you. Yeah, appreciate you coming on, letting us pick your brain. I could probably pick your brain for another four hours, but it's been fun to learn more about what you've built. And you've left some nice digital artifacts out there with interviews and different things. And you've had some very clear things that you stick to over the years. And I think that's the sign of a good, strong business. So appreciate your time, Sean. Well, thank you, guys. This is fun. Anytime I get invited to talk about the thing that I think about all the time, it's a pretty good day. So thank you. All right, Dom, we are back for our debrief. The debrief is the moment where Dom and I break down the conversation that we just had, because there's usually interesting takeaways from the answers themselves. But there might also be interesting tidbits from conducting the conversation that we just had. So we'll bring you in to our process. And actually, My biggest takeaway was how we solved the problem in the moment. In the moment of hosting this conversation, we figured out how powerful Google Docs really are. Dom and I were having this discussion beforehand. How should we let one another know when we want to jump in with a question? Because honestly, co-hosting interviews is really difficult to get into a rhythm. You want to keep everybody involved. Sometimes you have follow-up. Sometimes you don't. We were talking about using Slack, but we're always getting pinged by annoying messages on Slack, emails, a no-go. 
Do you want to use Discord? Then it makes that annoying noise. WeChat, maybe. But Google Docs was sitting there in front of us. We didn't even say anything, but we had this sixth sense and picked up on it in the middle of the discussion. Dom, when did you understand what I was doing with that Google Doc and highlighting those questions? When I was expecting you to jump into a question and you didn't for a few seconds, and I was like, oh man. And then I looked at the document and it was actually meant to be me. You saved my bacon, but then I saw you start to highlight questions. We tried to go through, okay, what arc do we want this conversation to go through? But then we want to be adaptable in the moment. Sean said some interesting stuff. We had to go off piece a little bit and then catching up going to be a challenge because you're like, is Matt going to ask the next question? You want to make it too awkward? Obviously, we can sort this kind of stuff out in post-production, but you also want to feel pretty natural in the moment. So we managed to figure it out, like you said, literally three minutes before. Because we'd done a few of these and they'd gone fine. We didn't have a system. And I think we stumbled into one. The best systems are the lighter systems, in my experience, or no system. So I think we've got a decent one, but we can always revisit that in future too. We picked up on the Google Doc from some of our favorite podcasts around the world, No Laying Up, big users of the Google Doc, the big picture from The Ringer, big users of the Google Doc. They will often reference the Google Doc. And we use this just to outline our thoughts about going into the conversation. Little did I know how much power that Google Doc could actually have. The really funny thing to me was that I could have just typed to you in the Google Doc, I will keep my questions here, or I will let you know if I want to switch up. But I never actually typed a message directly to you. I just used highlights in our own language and felt like a little bit of Morse code going on there. But hey, we did it. Six cents. Pretty soon we'll be, yeah, finishing each other's sentences. And that was number one right off the top. But I think in terms of the actual contents of the conversation, I mean, it lived up to my expectations when I first heard Sean. I've said this multiple times before. It was groundbreaking for me. It's like Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans essay, but on steroids. If you're 1,000 True Fans... If you could find them in a specific industry or around a specific niche where the value of those fans is really high and the value of the products that can be sold on the back of that is really high. And that can come across as, I think, negative to some artists or some creators where it's much more about the craft to them than it is about monetization. But the investing world, my view is always going to be you need the business to run. You need to be able to pay people to do what they're doing. You need to be able to generate profits. And that's a really freaking important part of any business. So the fact that they've gone about it in a much different way is refreshing because you hear or you see a million threads about how to gain followers. You don't see a million threads about how to gain the followers that you want to be following you and the ones that you want to be your fans because they might create interesting monetization opportunities. So that was just huge in the sense that one, he said it before, but Everything that he laid out in terms of the data gathering and all of that was exactly as I hoped it would be in terms of the level of detail and the level of commitment to that craft. Yeah, when you speak to people like Sean, I always think it kind of reminds you how much of an echo chamber 90% of your life has lived in. Because he was talking about stuff completely different from things that we would generally read or see, particularly on places like Twitter. He's very strategic about this business. I think I probably go from the content side. I just really enjoy the content. And then how do we get more people to watch this stuff or listen to it. Whereas he's much more like, where are my high value audiences and how can I best serve them? And they obviously do it through newsletters. And for me, it's like, it shows you what's possible. Patrick has this really cool thing that I think someone said to him once, your bar of excellence is set by the most excellent person that you know. And I think Sean, for me, kind of just raised that bar a little bit in terms of what a media business can be. Obviously got sold for north of $500 million or valued to that figure. 
and it's 10 years into its life. They've got 20 something publications in completely different industries. And the way in which you execute it, obviously, it always is going to sound neater in a story in a 50 minute conversation with us. But you can really see the thought process behind it and how they've managed to roll each property out successively and the things that they look for to target after 18 months or wherever it might be. They kind of just made me think after like, wow, there's a bigger opportunity ahead of us than I thought there might be, even though we're doing quite a different thing to Sean and his business. Absolutely. I think it's exactly right on terms of who they're creating for the business opportunity there. Again, I go back to like the niche and the idea of having the niche. What's interesting to me is I've spent some time with Industry Dive, covered transports, a space that they cover. My wife is a fan of Retail Dive, and it's not bad content. It's certainly borders on the line of news versus long-form media, but it's valuable. The piece of content, which I always think is interesting from a value-add perspective, is information that you can't get elsewhere or information that's delivered to you in a very convenient way. So... If you have access to certain people who have information and you can present that for your website like this, and you know it's going to be very specifically targeted in terms of what you're getting, that is a huge value add. And it's like one of the things that I was taught very early on in my career in terms of content is just think about who you can talk to that other people can't. And if you're able to gather information from those people, in addition to your own insights, that's probably going to be valuable to a certain set of people. And if you could serve those people, that's great. So those are like value-add exercises that right off the bat come to mind. And I think you're right, just in terms of raising the bar. The last thing that I would mention is I just thought his comment about the 18th month mark as kind of being a point to measure whether the outcome is good or bad in terms of new publications was surprising to me. It's a longer leash than I actually would have expected. And maybe that's just because we have a shorter leash. But it's a reminder that these things do take time to build. Patience it's always a balance. You don't want to just continue to fund something that's never going to work out. But his point on traffic being easy and audience being difficult to build really comes into play there with the 18 month mark. That stood out to me a little bit on the longer side of things that I would have expected. Yeah, I think part of that has to come from going into different industries and talking to different people. I think a lot of our podcasts to this point have been around a similar type of audience has been business and investing people, probably US based. If we launch a new show and we haven't got traction that early out the door, then I think we ask ourselves more questions because we know that they should be hitting a similar type of audience with some overlap in that Venn diagram, whereas they're probably looking at very different types of people. Like if you're reading Retail Dive, you're unlikely to be in the Transport Dive unless you're in the same household. Yeah, that's a good point. Any other takeaways that you had? Honestly, there's some small stuff in there. Like I was super interested to learn from him about how they scaled the business so quickly, even to start with five publications. We are producing five podcasts at the moment ourselves. And I know what kind of a challenge it feels like to us on the inside, how stretched we feel. How do you do this? And the way he just was honing in on the efficiency side of it, even naming. Because we talked about this when we launched Return on India. We could have called it India Breakdowns, like we called Web3 Breakdowns, Business Breakdowns. But we chose not to do that. Whereas he was like, very specifically, If we want this to be a big business and a profitable business, we need to hone in on all those points of efficiency and even down to the name, which obviously has brand value, but also not overthinking stuff like that and saying, actually, all of this stuff is going to be very similar, both in the architecture, the naming and the quality of the content. And so that allows us to be as lean as possible on the inside. So things like that were just really interesting to me. Naturally, it made me think a bit more about our newsletter. I think our newsletter has been something that we've always done, but never really thought too much about. I would say our newsletter has great engagement. Colossus Weekly, if you don't subscribe at the moment, 
but not necessarily great growth. I think there are reasons both in terms of the format of the newsletter, but also in terms of what we do with it to be able to grow that publication. So I think you should look for some changes out of the Colossus newsletter oh, oh. org. Oh. Maybe not the weekly one, but there might be some new ones dropping. This conversation is a big piece of that. Yes, we are working on those at the moment. The point on the titling of the shows is actually funny because Eric Golden, our host of Web3 Breakdowns, generally hates the name Web3 Breakdowns. And I can't disagree with him much, but that definitely played a role in the decision not to name Return on India, India Breakdowns. But it's a tricky one because in some ways it feels like each of those shows, and especially something like Web3 Breakdowns, where it's a very specific community. And let me tell you, acting the same way with that community as we do with our traditional listeners who are maybe more traditional finance, not a great strategy. It has to be tailored, I think, to that audience. So that's one I don't have a conclusion to, but it is an interesting point. Sometimes you go through these exercises and you think you've learned something and then you have a counterpoint to argue against it. You can just step back and say, I don't have a final opinion on that matter. Yeah, that's fair. What's Eric's suggestion for naming his podcast? I've yet to get it, and I'm still waiting. Hopefully, we hear soon from him on the exact naming device. I think at this point, because it has a following, he wouldn't change it, but he thinks it's somewhat limiting in the way that it was. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I'm kind of a solutions guy, not a problems guy. So when we have a solution, then come to me and we can discuss it. Respect. I respect it. Awesome. Any others? No, that was it. I'm just glad you introduced us to Sean. He wasn't someone I was following before. I'm now following him on Twitter and we'll be keeping up to date with Industry Dive. They're a big year ahead. I mean, 12 publications that they're launching in the next few months or year. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah, that was one last thing. He mentioned on an interview two years ago, you probably can't do more than like three publications. I do wonder if it has something to do with getting acquired, that they're pushing him to launch more. But 100%. purely my opinion, don't have any evidence to that from Sean himself. Last thing, I was impressed that he still managed his own calendar. Respect that. It was a little bit of a pain in the butt to schedule, but just a random tidbit. I slid into the DMs, made it happen, but did have to navigate through his own scheduling process, which slowed things down a little bit and the payoff was great. He also had to let his dog out the room during the recording. And for all of you who don't know, which is probably all of you, Matt often has a challenge. His lovely dog often is yapping in his, his office. He needs to let her out a few times every recording. Harriet just likes to have a spot on the pod. That's all. Can't hate on that. She's meant for it. She has the proper ego to be big in this audio game. (laughs) Well, awesome. I hope that we get Sean back on at some point in the future. He's definitely somebody that I am now paying attention to in terms of how they built it. I've gone down a rabbit hole listening to many of his appearances, as you can probably hear based on the interview and all the follow-up. And we hope you enjoyed this one. Join us next week for another conversation and more discussion about making media. Yeah, see you then.